Welcome back to World Cup Rambling. Make sure you've subscribed to the podcast, rate it, and leave me a review. When preparing for this series, the World Cup Rambling Council made the decision to move the traditional World Cup retrospective to the summer episodes. That way, they can overlap with when the tournament is traditionally held. Qatar 2022 was such a controversial tournament, right from the initial award in 2010, all the way through the competition itself. In terms of controversial World Cups, there's really only one other tournament that Qatar can be compared with. It was a tournament that took place 45 years ago and has left so many unanswered questions to this day. Indeed, there's one particular game in this tournament that has given rise to so many conspiracy theories that on its own, it would be a long podcast episode. I'm going to do it in three parts. This month, I'll give you the background and preview to the tournament. Next month, I'll do the first group stage. And the month after, I'll do the second group stage and the knockouts. So load up on the ticker tape. It was just toilet roll, by the way. Hop in the DeLorean and join me on part one of a three-part trip back to Mundial Setenta Yachu. This World Cup had one of the most complex, chaotic and controversial build-ups. What I'm going to do here is break this down into six sections. I'm going to look at the background to Argentina getting the World Cup hosting rights, the declining years of Peronism in Argentina, the military coup of March 1976, the dirty war, the junta seizing control of the World Cup preparations, And then finally, the international response to Argentina's World Cup. Argentina at first tried to host the World Cup in 1938. Their bid sank dismally. France won 19 votes to Argentina's three, with Germany trailing on one. Argentina had believed that the World Cup would alternate between Europe and South America. Uruguay had hosted it in 1930. Italy in 1934. So when France got it in 1938, that provoked outrage from Argentina and Uruguay, both of whom decided to boycott the competition. Argentina threw their hat into the ring to host the 1962 World Cup. I referenced this in the Battle of Santiago episode from Series 2. Make sure you listen to it. On paper, Argentina's bid looked vastly superior to Chile's but the Chileans won the bid with 32 votes to Argentina's 11. Argentina's next attempt came for the 1970 World Cup, but at the FIFA Congress, 
held in Tokyo in October 1964. Mexico beat them with 56 votes to 32. Incidentally, England were amongst the 32 to vote for Argentina, as the English delegation feared the heat and altitude of Mexico. With Mexico having been given the 1970 competition, that left Argentina free to host the 1978 World Cup. It was probably their turn, inverted commas, given that Uruguay, Brazil and Chile had all hosted World Cups. When the FIFA Congress met in London in 1966, Argentina were confirmed as the hosts for 1978. South American politics should always be handled with care, and anything I say now includes the caveat that I'm not an expert in this field. At that point, you're probably shouting at your listening device, you're not an expert in any field, Matthew. Argentina's political and public life in the post-war period had become increasingly defined by turmoil, violence, and bloodshed. Antonius Robin, whose book Political Violence and Trauma in Argentina was a good source, writes that violence was legitimated as the price of progress. Juan Perón's first period as Argentina's president from 1946 to 1955 had ended when he was overthrown in a coup by Revolución Libertadora. Perón's first lady during this presidential term was Eva Duarte, better known as Evita, who became an international icon immortalised in the eponymous Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Perón went into exile and his party was banned from standing in general elections. Intransigent, radical civic union, that's easy for you to say, would govern Argentina from 1958 to 1966. Another military coup called Argentine Revolution followed in 1966. Military rule would continue until 1973, when the ban on Peronism was lifted and Peron returned to power in October 1973. It was hardly a glad, confident morning. Andreas Campomar, writing about life under Peron, said that the social fabric of the country was disintegrating. The economy was out of control. Juan Perón died on the 1st of July 1974. Bizarrely, one-minute silences were held mid-game in the next few World Cup matches, including West Germany's match against Poland. Perón was succeeded by his vice-president, Isabel who also happened to be his wife. History would repeat itself in 2007 when President Nestor Kirchner was succeeded by his wife, the Sheik Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, although Mrs. Fernandez de Kirchner won an election in her own right. Isabel Perón fell out with her leftist supporters and took an authoritarian turn to curb the Montoneros. This was the left-wing guerrilla faction that had initially supported Peronism, 
before being expelled from the party. The sympathy that Isabel had garnered following the death of her husband quickly evaporated. Isabel presided over Argentina's descent into a further spiral of violence and economic decline. At the end of her speech, Isabel Peron asked the crowd to leave quietly and wave them goodbye. Indeed, they've seen little of her since. Yesterday, she entered hospital with a minor complaint, pausing only to denounce the journalistic terrorism which was pressing her to resign. As the assorted henchmen, party officials and ministers joined in the national hymn, they too must have wondered how much longer her presidency could survive. Here mortals the sacred call, liberty, liberty, liberty. Hear the noise of breaking chains, sang the crowd. On the sidelines, watching, listening, prepared, the army. Knowing that when Isabel is finally dislodged, they will surely inherit a crumbling economy, worsening civil disorder, and the ruins of a political dream, Peronism. That was the state of Argentina in November 1975, and it seemed like it was only a matter of time before the military seized power. The military seized power on the 24th of March 1976 with Isabel's supporters chanting her name as the deposed president was whisked away in a helicopter to be placed under arrest by the new regime. Military coups were a way of life in South America. Reese Richards, in his excellent book, Blood on the Crossbar, describes coups as an established mode of toppling lame or corrupt governments. Public assemblies were suspended. All transport was suspended. Factories were taken over by the military. The media was brought under control. Educational establishments were closed and a midnight curfew was brought in, things that would never happen in a liberal democracy. The new regime, headed up by General Jorge Videla, justified the coup on the grounds that the Peronist government had failed to deal with Argentina's economic, political and security crises. Robin writes that the armed forces were determined to eradicate 
the vices troubling Argentina. Ricardo Villa, who would be part of Argentina's World Cup squad, wrote years later that the coup initially received widespread support in Argentina. That seems remarkable now, considering the subsequent conduct of Videla and his cruel regime. But at the time of the coup, the people of Argentina were desperate for change. Once in power, the junta initiated a program that was called the Process of National Reorganization, a euphemism if ever there was one. Robin writes that Argentina society had to be refashioned in ways similar to the near-mythical heyday of the 19th century. The junta believed that Argentinian society had been contaminated by harmful foreign influences. The harmful foreign influences, according to Robin, were Marx, Freud and Einstein, three principal ideological enemies. This next bit is from B.L. Smith's article about the junta. The new government zealously attacked any and all elements of society perceived as subversive. The military abducted, imprisoned, tortured and killed thousands of Argentinians who were guilty of no crimes other than activities in leftist political groups or intellectual circles or who were merely unfortunate enough to be listed in an address book belonging to someone the regime considered to be subversive. The torture methods were horrific and dehumanising. Captives were stripped naked, tied to an iron bed frame and had body parts shocked by electricity. There was also waterboarding, beatings with fists, sticks and truncheons sexual torture, mock executions, horrendous stuff. Robin writes about the secret detention centres. Captives were held under degrading circumstances, naked, hooded, dirty, covered with sores and with chronic infections and coughs. One of the most notorious torture centres was the ESMA, ESMA, at the old Naval Officers' School in Buenos Aires. This torture centre was about a mile from the River Plate Stadium and there is testimony from prisoners that they could hear goals going in and crowds celebrating during the World Cup. In 2018, two of the Dutch players from this World Cup, Ari Hahn and Ernie Brantz, visited the old Naval Officers' School Brandt said that if he had been aware of everything about Argentina, he definitely wouldn't have gone to the World Cup. The early days of the so-called process saw labour unions at the top of the hit list, with shop stewards and grassroots activists being detained or abducted. Robin writes that in April 1977, the junta ramped up their actions and targeted major industries, educational institutions, the church and working class neighbourhoods, workers, students and clergymen. 
the issue of the disappeared is one that still echoes down to the present day in Argentina. The disappeared were secret kidnapped victims whose disappearance the state refused to acknowledge. These people had officially ceased to exist. What often happened is that they were blindfolded, shot in the back of the head, and then dumped at sea. Alternatively, their corpses would be used as props in a bogus armed confrontation. Then it would be reported in the media that the military had won a great victory against terrorist groups. Another method was to take live prisoners, sedate them, and then drop them either in the ocean or in the river plate, the notorious death flights. Reese Richards writes that this policy was instituted because people needed to be disposed of as far away from the cities as possible. The military had pulled the media under control very early by issuing guidance via two circulars on what could and couldn't be reported. B.L. Smith wrote that the news media was encouraged to concentrate less on reporting the Argentinian situation in order to focus on changing or reinstituting the character of the Argentinian people. In this sense, the junta simply extended its program of national reorganization to the media. Many of those who were brave enough to challenge the official version of events found themselves taken off to a detention centre and their newspapers taken over by the junta. Bob Cox of the Buenos Aires Herald, a small English language paper, would continue to publish stories of the junta's crimes even throughout the World Cup. When he eventually left Argentina in December 1979, following death threats from the junta, the campaigning mothers thanked him for continuing to highlight what was happening in the country. The mothers of the Plaza de Mayo would emerge, in Robin's words, as the public face of non-violent resistance to the dictatorship. Robin wrote that the women utilised their role as mothers brilliantly. What was more natural than a mother wanting to know about the fate of their child? The Plaza de Mayo is the public square in front of the Casa Rosada, the Argentinian presidential palace. There's that line in Oh What a Circus from Evita. The best show in town was the crowd outside the Casa Rosada crying Ava Peron. David Essex did a great version of that song. Reese Richards writes of how the junta tried to smear the mothers as mentally ill, saying that your political opponents and their supporters are mentally ill or mentally deficient is a common tactic in demagoguery. One of the protest marches by the Mothers Group was on the 1st of June 1978, just as the World Cup was kicking off at the River Plate Stadium. Brian Glanville called the marches a bleak reminder of what lay beneath the surface of normal life. B.L. Smith wrote that the flagging Peron government of 1973 to 1976 
had done very little to prepare the country to host the Mundial, and some feared Argentina would have to give back the cup. That thing of the country isn't ready, the stadiums aren't ready, the political situation is too unstable, the tournament should be moved, blah, blah, blah. That's been said on so many occasions before so many sporting events, so it isn't a recent thing. Rob, if you're listening, that one's for you. A joke went around about Argentinian organisation. When we've shown the FIFA delegates the stadia and the hotels, what do we do for the rest of the day? In October 1974, Sir Stanley Rouse, who had just been deposed as FIFA president by Jean Havelange, said, Certainly, there was a lot of work to be done last time I was in Argentina, but it is ridiculous to suggest that it could not be completed within four years. Rouse poo-pooed the notion that the tournament might be moved to Spain, saying that in the event of Argentina not being ready, Colombia, who had the rights for 1986, that's a podcast episode of its own, they would have their tournament brought forward to 1978 in order to maintain the Europe-America alternation cycle of World Cup hosts. Shortly after Rouse's comments, and against the backdrop of a deteriorating political situation, Havillons visited Argentina. The new FIFA boss declared himself confident that Argentina was up to the job. I have seen tremendous enthusiasm, and I am sure with the government's plan and the work being done in each region, Argentina will organise a good World Cup. Of that, I have no doubt. Northern Ireland's Harry Cavan, the Irish FA head honcho and FIFA vice president, agreed with Havillange. There was no evidence during my visit that they could not undertake this operation. It was reported by a Buenos Aires newspaper, Conica, that there was a plot to take the tournament away from Argentina. Brazil and Great Britain are the first conductors of the symphony called Anti-Argentina 78. It would not surprise us if the European bloc tries to outmaneuver us. This theory was based on reports that Havelange had been secretly disparaging of Argentina. Harry Cavan rubbished the idea of a plot to deprive Argentina of the World Cup, but again it shows that there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to major tournaments. The media in the host country believing that overseas media are out to undermine the hosts. When the military coup happened in March 1976, Cavan issued a statement of breathtaking complacency. If a change in government brings stability to the country, then it is all for the good. Last week I met Hermann Neuberger, the chairman of the organising committee. He was satisfied with all aspects, and the only difficulty seemed to be the political situation. Come what may, everyone was determined to ensure the World Championship would be staged successfully in Argentina. Well, Harry, try telling that to the thousands of people who are about to get their genitals zapped with cattle prods. These FIFA people just don't get it, do they? The Junta quickly saw the value of hosting the World Cup. Liam Mercado, in a thesis about Argentina 78, wrote that The decision to stick with the tournament was a political one. A successful World Cup 
it was reasoned, could be used to deflect attention away from forced disappearances, indiscriminate torture, and political killings. Mercado also added that, with Argentina backing itself into a diplomatic corner over human rights, a global competition to showcase the morality and supremacy of the Argentinian people was a useful nationalist tool for the military regime, particularly given the regional backlash against communist and progressive movements. Sporting events as a political tool is a story as old as time, and it doesn't just happen in dictatorships. Even your run-of-the-mill liberal democracies have sought to exploit the World Cup, whether it was Harold Wilson, Britain's Labour Prime Minister in 1966, Jacques Chirac turning up at the 1998 final with a French scarf, or Emmanuel Macron's cringeworthy efforts at the last two tournaments. The problem for the Junta is that by the time they took over the country, preparations by the Peronist organisation, CAM, had barely left the drawing board. They were particularly lagging behind on stadium renovations and infrastructure. In July 1976, the Junta formed EAM78, a new organisation that would have responsibility for the World Cup. General Omar Actis was put in charge of EAM. On the day that he was due to meet the press, he was shot dead. The New York Times reported the assassination as the first major guerrilla actions since a Marxist guerrilla chief was killed a few months ago. It seems more likely, however, that Actis was killed as a result of a power struggle within the junta. If you read the great website, Papalitos.com. It says that the World Championship, like many other subjects, was a reason of profound conflict on the inside of the military government. The disunity within the junta was illustrated by the fact that Juan Alaman, the Treasury Secretary, called the World Cup the most visible and indefensible case of non priority spending in Argentina today. Alaman's reward for opening his big mouth would come in time, but we'll get to that in a later episode. He was right, however, as costs spiralled out of control. Carlos Lacoste was put in charge of World Cup planning. In John Sperling's Death or Glory, The Dark History of the World Cup, Lacoste is described as the Junta's hard man. Years later, Lacoste would be found guilty of diverting public money from World Cup construction projects to his friends, which I suppose was the least of his crimes. Lacoste would become a FIFA vice president in 1982, and Rhys Richards cites this as an example of how intertwined the dictatorship was with world football's governing body. New stadiums had to be built, existing stadiums had to be renovated, a new system of colour TV had to be created, and a new media centre was also needed. When the media centre eventually materialised, the FIFA official film described it as the most extravagantly equipped in all of South America. Shanty towns were bulldozed 
and the people living there were moved to cities that weren't hosting the World Cup. John Sperling mentions numerous disastrous errors from the Junta. One of these was watering the pitch at Mar del Plata with seawater, which had the effect of wrecking the playing surface. When you watch matches in this World Cup, some of the pitches were awful. FIFA's technical report would say that playing surfaces, with the exception of Cordoba, were not up to the quality one expects for the final competition. The surface at Mar del Plata suffered the most, and the yielding turf gave poor foothold and kicked up badly, thereby affecting the true run of the ball. A conspiracy theory would form that Brazil were deliberately sent to Mar del Plata, where the dodgy surface would hamper their style of play. In November 1976, Havelange met Videla in Buenos Aires. Havelange said that the World Cup would definitely take place in Argentina and all the stadiums and infrastructure would be delivered on time. The Junta didn't have everything their own way. The Argentina 78 logo, described by Mercado as two sweeping sky blue arms on a white field, with a traditional black pentagon, white hexagon patterned soccer ball at the centre of its embrace. This predated the Junta and was based on Juan Perón's famous arms in the air, palms up gesture. Lacoste wanted to replace the logo because of the Junta's quest to purge all evidence of Peronism. Unfortunately for the Junta, the merchandising contracts had already been signed and it was too late to change them. Mercado wrote that the Junta grudgingly accepted their political adversary as the symbol of the tournament. The Junta was cognizant of the image of Argentina and they had a strategy for dealing with this, controlling the domestic media and buttering up the foreign media. Controlling the domestic media was easy. B.L. Smith writes that the hoped-for self-censorship became entrenched among all sectors of the Argentine media as editors and reporters adhered to the junta's parameters for story writing. The government also practiced press censorship by introducing a law prohibiting Argentina's dailies from publishing anything from foreign news agencies that referred to Argentina in a negative way. Pablo Yonto, a lawyer and a journalist, would condemn the supine attitude of the domestic media. In terms of the criminal responsibility of civilians in times of the dictatorship, the performance of our journalism in those days was criminal. If at any moment the Argentine press filled its quota of obedience, of concealment, and of the political embrace of genocide, it was during June of 1978. Mercado writes of how the junta used visual and textual rhetoric disseminated via daily newspapers as an integral strategy to foster nationalist sentiment ahead of the World Cup. Images of harmonious Argentinian society were used to rally the public to defend the nation. Naturally, the junta attributed criticism of Argentina's human rights record 
and its suitability as a host nation to a foreign conspiracy against Argentina. In terms of enhancing Argentina's image, the junta hired an American PR firm called Burson Marsteller, which sounds like a CIA front organization. Macaro described this as one of the regime's costlier strategies. The agency had told Videla of the importance of Argentina projecting a new progressive and stable image throughout the world. The agency recommended bringing on board what we would now call influencers to help clean up Argentina's image, writers, journalists, celebrities, businessmen, etc. Part of the strategy was to invite journalists to Argentina, show them around the venues, make them relaxed and comfortable so they could return home and sing great songs of praise about Argentina. The flip side of this strategy was to have Argentine journalists go abroad to tell everyone how great their country was. You have to wonder how successful the PR offensive actually was, because as the World Cup got closer, Alarm bells were raised across Europe about the tournament being held in Argentina. We have been in Argentina from November 6 to November 15 on behalf of Amnesty International an organization concerned with human rights to which national sections from 33 countries are affiliated. We deeply regret the appalling outrages which are still being committed by terrorists in Argentina and we express our sincere sympathy with the relatives of the victims. At this stage we don't wish to make any comment on the situation regarding human rights in Argentina. We shall be reporting comprehensively to Amnesty International to the International Executive on our return, and inter alia we shall be covering the following subjects. One, the context of violence by unofficial groups within which human rights questions have to be considered. Second, the publication of the names of persons held in custody. Third, prison conditions including access to prisoners by both lawyers and relatives. Fourth, allegations of ill treatment of persons held in custody. Fifth, the problem of political refugees, their resettlement, and the question of their illegal return to their countries of origin. Sixth, abductions. Seventh, the emergency legislation. That was Lord Avebury, also known as Eric Lubbock, the former Liberal Party MP for Orpington. He was speaking in November 1976, so that was before the campaigns and the boycott calls really ramped up as the junta's crimes became more apparent. Mikado wrote that between October 1977 and April 1978, France became the principal hub for public anti-mundial protests, opinion pieces, debates, and of course graphic materials. Marek Halter a French writer called for a boycott saying that if we do not win this battle, barbarity will prevail. The junta used the campaigns as evidence of the so-called conspiracy against Argentina. Just a week before the World Cup, 
a group of activists attempted to kidnap Michel Hidalgo, the France manager, in a bid to raise awareness of the plight of the disappeared. Hidalgo had no problem fighting off the gang, but it's a vignette of how strong the feeling was in certain sectors against the World Cup. Cuba, the committee for the boycott of the Argentina World Cup, came up with the slogan, No to football in concentration camps, and they altered the Argentina 78 logo. Extra sweeping arms were added in to look like prison bars, and then barbed wire was drawn to connect the bars. Amnesty International's slogan was, Yes to football, no to torture, meaning they were in favour of the World Cup, but against it being used to cover up the crimes of the junta. Campaign imagery lent heavily on linking the Argentinian junta with Nazi Germany. The war had only finished 30 years before, so it was a vivid memory for a lot of people. One poster featured Hitler standing on the top step of an Olympic podium, with Videla on the next step, a reference to the notorious Berlin Olympics of 1936. In those days, the bar was set much higher when it came to comparing things to Hitler. In Holland, a pair of Dutch comedians started a campaign calling for the national team to boycott the World Cup. Rhys Richards has a great chapter on this in his book. The Dutch government suggested that they were sympathetic to the cause, but it was up to the Dutch FA to decide whether the team went to Argentina. Gary Thacker wrote that the campaign failed to gain a committed support among the political left or the unions. Ari Hahn, the Dutch player, said years later, We thought that if we didn't come, it wouldn't change anything. Instead, it could make a difference if we came. I think it was good to come so that the world would know what was happening. That's Han basically saying, if we go, we can raise awareness, which is always the path of least resistance, because who cares once the circus has moved on? In West Germany, Amnesty International activists engaged directly with the German players. This came about because the German FA, taking its cue from the German government, had adopted an uncritical line towards the reports of torture in Argentina. Felix Botta writes that Amnesty asked the players to sign a petition demanding the end of human rights violations in Argentina. Klaus Fischer refused to sign. Bertie Votes wondered if the campaigners would have been this energetic if the tournament was in the Soviet Union. Paul Breitner, who had quit international football anyway, supported Amnesty's position and urged the players who were going to the World Cup not to shake hands with Videla so as not to be exploited by the military regime. Of the German players who did go, Sepp Meyer was probably the most notable supporter of Amnesty's position. In Italy, which had strong historic links with Argentina, many leftists argued for a boycott. In the UK, the National Union of Journalists was very active in campaigning. At this point, the NUJ was headed up by Dennis McShane, the future Labour MP, Blair Government Minister, an all-round man of integrity. Activists in the UK focused on raising awareness of human rights abuses in Argentina, knowing that a boycott was a non-starter. In 
and I'm not going to make the joke about how Scotland went to the World Cup and then decided to boycott it once they got there. It can be hard to judge how much success these campaigns actually had. The World Cup went ahead and no teams boycotted it. A bomb going off in the press centre killed a policeman, but for the most part, security crises were kept to a minimum. The Montaneros, the left-wing guerrillas who Fidela had nearly quashed anyway, agreed to cease hostilities so as not to disrupt the festival of the people. Spoiler alert, Argentina won the cup and Videla got his photo opportunities. In that sense, you could argue that the campaigns failed. Pablo Yonto believes that the tournament was the first major seal of approval for the dictatorship. You can take an alternative view like Mara Coulter. We never thought we could stop the tournament from being played. Our intention was to spark a great international mobilisation so that the whole world could see the true face of the military regime. In that sense, it was a positive result. The Mundial went ahead, but the European press talked about torture and disappearance every day. was a bit heavy but this World Cup is almost impossible to separate from that political situation so if you stuck with that bit well done. I provide intelligent high-level content that's what it says on my dating profile and the women are queuing around the block as we speak. <laughs> the 1978 World Cup had 16 teams it would be the last World Cup of this size. The talk of expansion had been around for years. If you read the FIFA technical studies of 1966, 1970 and 1974, there were recommendations for how to expand the competition. In August 1972, Argentina's FIFA delegation retracted a proposal to expand the 1978 World Cup to 24 teams. A spokesman for the Argentina delegation said, with Europe lined up against us and the uncertainty of how some of the Afro-Asian delegates would vote, it was best to withdraw our proposal. Havelange was elected FIFA president, taking office on a platform to expand the World Cup. The FIFA Congress held in Frankfurt ruled that the organising committee for Mundial 78 could allow up to 20 teams. The technical study for 1974 produced all kinds of complex ways that a 20-team competition could be formatted. However, the organising committee stuck with 16 teams for 1978. Hugh McIlvenny, writing in The Observer, cautioned against World Cup expansion. Most alarming of all was the talk of enlarging an event that was already becoming overblown both in size and its assumed importance, to accommodate 20 or 24 finalists and all the additional nationalistic 
and commercial madness such a change would imply, that thought should be buried at once. So even then, the World Cup was seen as spiralling out of control. The mind boggles at what dear old Hugh would have thought of 48 teams in 2026. The draw for this World Cup took place on the 14th of January 1978, with Ricardo Texera Havelange, grandson of the FIFA president, doing the honours. The run-up to the draw had the standard FIFA machinations. The FIFA website says the draw was based upon the most complicated seating arrangement yet, the mathematical formula was not a happy one and was promptly discarded. Argentina, the hosts, and West Germany, the defending champions, were automatically seeded, Argentina into Group 1 and the Germans into Group 2. That left two more seeded places. Brazil, the three times champions, they got one of the seeding places, heading up Group 3. Holland and Italy were the two contenders for the remaining place. Havilland said that he believed Italy would be chosen in accordance with economic interests. The Dutch filed a protest even before this had been confirmed. The organisers came up with a messy compromise. Holland were picked as the fourth seed, heading up Group 4, but the Italians were offered a choice of where they wanted to be placed in the draw. That's right, a team was allowed to pick where it wanted to go. So in a sense, Italy were effectively the fifth seed. The Italians chose to go in Group 1, Argentina's group, in hope of benefiting from large attendances because of the strong historic links between Italy and Argentina. They also assumed that Argentina, as hosts, would be given a weak group, but it didn't quite work out like that. The remaining 11 countries were divided up into four pots. Pot A had Scotland, Spain and Poland, and they would be split between groups 2, 3 and 4. Pot B had Peru and Mexico, who would be split between group 2 and 4. Pot C had Sweden and Hungary, who would be split between group 1 and group 3. And Pot D had Iran, Tunisia, France and Austria, so four of them, so there'd be one of them in each group. Try and keep up at the back. What's it going to be? Austria. In group three, Scotland has Iran. Scotland's group is Holland, Peru, and Iran. The best drawer in the world for the World Cup for Scotland. Iran, Peru and Scotland. Surely a passport into the last state. World Cup calendar then. June the 3rd, the first match. Peru against Scotland. June the 7th, Cordoba. Scotland against Iran. And the last match of all, Scotland against Holland. Mendoza on the 11th, and that could be a match that doesn't really matter because Scotland and Holland could both be qualifying by then. A clip of the draw there with some Scottish hubris. The final draw was Group 1, 
Argentina, Italy, Hungary, France. Group 2, West Germany, Poland, Mexico, Tunisia. Group 3, Brazil, Spain, Sweden, Austria. And Group 4, Holland, Scotland, Peru, Iran. Colin Malum would write of Argentina's group that the devil himself could not have devised a more fiendish World Cup than this. It seemed crazy to threaten the host nation, the biggest money spinner, so dangerously at such an early stage. The pre-draw politicking appeared to have backfired. In the case of Scotland, the Daily Mirror described their group as the dream draw they wanted. Bruce Rioch, the Scotland captain, said, Really, we could have qualified before that final game. I am sure we will beat Peru and Iran. Ali McLeod, the Scotland manager, said, We could not have had a much better draw. The Glasgow Herald was more cautious, referencing the 1974 World Cup by running with the headline, Please remember Zaire. the schedule. The matches kicked off at various times across the afternoon, that's Argentina time, with the exception of matches involving the host nation. The FIFA technical report said on the decision to put Argentina matches on late. This is not the first time that privilege has been granted to a host country. It is easy to justify any arrangement on the grounds that it achieves bigger crowds wider television interest, and financial gain. Think of the money, of course, but this decision would light the fire under one of the biggest controversies of this World Cup. Strangely, from a modern perspective, there are instances of group games being played simultaneously, and these weren't even the final pair of games. For example, on Saturday the 3rd of June at 5.45pm, UK viewers had a choice of Brazil versus Sweden on BBC One or Austria versus Spain on ITV. This continued into the second stage when the Group A matches were played in three simultaneous pairs. For example, on Wednesday the 14th of June at 5.45pm you had West Germany versus Italy on BBC One and Holland versus Austria on ITV. With skills like this, I should become a continuity announcer. It's a far cry from Red Buttons and BBC4, ITV4 and full match replays in the early hours of the morning. There were, however, more live matches on British TV in 1978 than there had been in 1974, with both the Beeb and ITV increasing their coverage. 34 of the 38 games were shown live compared to 25 out of 38 in 1974. Wimbledon didn't start until the day after the World Cup, so that possibly played a role 
in freeing up BBC broadcasting time. Scotland's matches were shown on both BBC and ITV, as was the opening game between West Germany and Poland. I wonder how non-football fans would have taken that, only three channels in those days, and two of them showing the same programme. Although the World Cup of 1970, with the kick-off times to suit European television, was an illustration of TV getting its hold on the game, it still hadn't reached the stage where every single match was on live. For its time though, Argentina 78 was the most covered World Cup in terms of live games for the British audience. You all know the drill by now. Well, at least you should because you should have listened to the 1982 and 1986 retrospectives. I'm just going to take you on a whistle-stop tour through the 16 finalists. Group 1 had Argentina, Italy, Hungary, France. There was an unusual parallel with the military junta and the Argentina national team. Cesar Luis Minotti, the Argentina manager, chain-smoking and left-leaning, was very much not a junta man. In fact, Neil Clark writes that Minotti was only kept in office because the junta did not want to disrupt their carefully led plans for 1978. Ricky Villa said, Had he not already been in charge, it's unlikely that he would have been given the job. However, Minotti saw it as his duty to restore Argentinian football to a glorious past of attacking play. Jonathan Wilson described Minotti as the philosopher prince of the old Romanticism. Minotti felt that Argentinian football which had moved in a brutal physical direction, had become contaminated by foreign influences, which is what the junta felt about Argentinian society at large. Minotti had spent some of his playing career in Brazil during the 1960s, so he hadn't been tainted by the brutality of football in Argentina. Minotti's desire to purify Argentinian football appealed to the junta, who saw it as their duty to purify Argentinian society. When Minotti returned to Argentina, he managed Huracan to the league title in 1973, playing what Neil Clark called a refreshing attacking style, the polar opposite of the 1960s club sides and Lorenzo's defensive tactics at the previous World Cups. Upon his appointment to the Argentina job, 
Minotti tried to develop a style which Jimmy Burns described as a mixture of elegant technique and instinctive daring with emphasis on dribbling and great offensive vitality. This style was known as La Nuestra, Spanish for ours as in our style of play. Jonathan Wilson said the whole early philosophy of Argentinian football was founded on the joy of attacking. As well as wanting to make Argentina easier on the eye, Minotti also aimed to bring a more professional approach to the national setup. Ricky Villa remembered the players being kept in a stringent training camp and paired off in rooms according to personality type, which is how Villa and Osvaldo Ardiles became mates. The 1978 technical report said The planned programme over the four years from 1974 to 1978 is an example of building a team by purposeful method and of creating a collective spirit in the squad in support of the new style of play and the manner of its development. Minotti garnered some criticism from the Buenos Aires press because of his decision to search beyond the capital for players. Ricky Villa attributed the Buenos Aires dominance to the basic fact that the size of Argentina meant it was difficult for national team managers to get around. Casting the net far and wide allowed Minotti to find technical players like Villa, Ardiles, Daniel Bertoni and Jose Valencia. The bedrock of the team was the goalkeeper Ubaldo Fiel, the centre-back partnership of the ferocious Daniel Passarella and Luis Galvan, and then there was also the crazy left-back Alberto Tarantini and midfield tough guy Americo Gallego. Minotti lobbied successfully for the AFA to ban the sale of Argentinian players to overseas clubs. The ban came in from October 1976. Unfortunately for Minotti, Mario Campes had already gone abroad to join Valencia in La Liga. Campes was a versatile attacker, capable of playing as the main striker or in a more withdrawn role. His overseas engagements meant that he was unavailable for the build-up to the tournament. No synchronised calendar in those days. There was no room for teenage superstar Diego Maradona. Maradona had made his international debut in 1977 against Hungary and there was already a frenzied sense of expectation about the new boy. Minotti left Maradona out, feeling that the pressure would be too much for him and that there were already players available who had proved themselves. Although some witnesses suggested that an egomaniac like Minotti didn't want to risk being overshadowed by the 17-year-old wonder kid who would inevitably take the headlines if Argentina won the World Cup, much like Pele had in 1958. Maradona would pronounce the World Cup snub as the biggest disappointment of my life. It marked me forever. It defined me. Not even at USA 94 with the drugs test that I cry so much. 
Colin Malum described Argentina's results in friendlies as patchy and said these didn't give much of a clue to what could be expected of them. And of course, question marks remained over whether Argentina could really purge the old brutality and skullduggery from their play. The Italians had qualified on goal difference ahead of England. When England beat Italy 2-0 at Wembley, England had a two-point lead, but the Italians had a game in hand against Luxembourg. Italy beat Luxembourg 3-0 and qualified for the World Cup, although they were jeered by their own fans who expected a bigger victory. Enzo Berzot was in charge of the Azzurri. Beresot wasn't a popular choice with the critics. The official film said that the team had been savaged by their own media. The fans back home expected nothing of them. Beresot did have some things going for him though. Syria had instituted a protectionist policy during the 1970s, banning foreign players from the league, and this gave greater scope for the development of young Italian talent. Beresot, according to the technical report, had watched the Dutch in 1974 and wondered whether he could get the Italian players, whilst maintaining the best elements of the defensive game, to move quickly into concerted attack. Philip Evans in his World Cup 78 preview said that Beresot is trying very hard to get football in Italy out of the rut of Catanaccio. There was a parallel with Minotti and Argentina. The idealistic manager tried to shake off the defensive shackles and move towards a more attacking style. Of course, it wasn't as straightforward as that. Beresot, as Brian Glanville pointed out, had a curious, ambivalent approach to violent players. Beresot used the so-called Blocco Juve, building the national team around a successful Juventus squad who had won a Serie A and UEFA Cup double in 1977 and then a Serie A title again in 1978. The Juve block included Dino Zoff, an experienced goalkeeper, rated as one of the world's best, Antonio Cabrini, a classy young left-back, Gaetano Scherrer, a graceful, skillful sweeper, in the words of John Foote, Scherrer was part of the new generation of Italian defenders who didn't have to rely on brute force and physical intimidation. The hardman quota was filled up by Marco Tardelli, Claudio Gentile and Romeo Benetti, three men you wouldn't want to meet in a bright alley, let alone a dark one. Up front was the gifted Roberto Bettega, described in the official film as strong on the ground devastating in the air. Bettega had scored a wonderful diving header against England and Rome, the climax of a great move in which Casio, another Juventus player, had executed a gorgeous back heel to send Benetti up the wing, a goal that represented Italy's evolution. Make sure you watch it on YouTube. 
Also, make sure you watch Bettega's goal against Deportivo Italiano from a pre-tournament friendly. It's an acrobatic back heel when the ball is in mid-air. One of the best goals I've ever seen. The most notable players the Italians had outside of Juventus were Antonioni of Fiorentina, a high-quality midfield general, the brains of the operation. And there was the young Vicenza striker Paolo Rossi, who had been the top scorer in Serie B in 1977, before becoming top scorer in Serie A in 1978, and very nearly spearheading Vicenza to the Scudetto one season after promotion. The official film described Rossi as short in height, long in determination. Hungary were back for the first time since 1966. After topping UEFA Group 9, helped by a surprise win over their Soviet bullies, the Hungarians then had to enter the Intercontinental Playoff. They overcame Bolivia 9-2 on aggregate. Their manager, Laos Barotti, was described by Colin Malum as a direct link with and a living reminder of the palmy days of Hungarian football in the 1950s. Barotti had managed Hungary at the 1958, 1962 and 1966 World Cups. And now he was back for a fourth crack at the whip. Philip Evans described the Hungarian vintage of 1978 as a young side full of talent and impatient for success. The Hungarian domestic season had finished in February to facilitate the squad's preparation for the tournament. Some of the more notable players in the squad were the young attackers Ferrari, Nyalazi, and Tarasic, who had all been fed through successfully from junior level. Tarasic had a run-in with the Hungarian authorities for trying to smuggle stereo equipment into the country. There was experience in the shape of Fasikas, a prolific striker at club level and a veteran of Hungary's 1968 Olympic gold medal team. Immediately after qualification, Barotti had talked up Hungary's chances. With a reasonable draw, we could do well in Argentina. Like Hungary, France were back for the first time since 1966. Promising results across 1977 and 1978, including wins over West Germany and Brazil, indicated that the French could be a force in this World Cup. Jim Reynolds in the Glasgow Herald wrote that their strong section is the midfield, one of the best in Europe. The midfield was built around young Michel Platini, a dazzling talent who was widely regarded as the best French player since Raymond Coppa, one of the heroes of 1958. Other promising players in midfield included Dominique Bathenay, 
and Dominique Rostow. Both of them picked up injuries prior to the World Cup, but would recover in time to play a role in France's campaign. The defence was marshalled by the captain, the outstanding Marius Trezor, a centre-back of the highest order. If Michel Hidalgo had any worries, besides kidnap attempts from anti-World Cup activists, it was his forward line. The ITV World Cup preview wrote that the French have a problem with finding a consistent goal scorer. The lack of a consistent goal scorer would be a problem for Hidalgo, both here and in 1982. And it would be a problem for his successor, Henri Michel, who in 1978 was part of the France midfield. Group 2 had West Germany, Poland, Mexico, Tunisia. Helmut Schoen was back for his fourth and last World Cup as manager of West Germany. The Germans were the reigning world champions. Hermann Neuberger, the German FA chief, had pleaded with Schoen to carry on after 1974, the manager having shown signs of wilting under the pressure. Despite the loss of Gerd Muller, Wolfgang Overath and Jürgen Grabowski after the 1974 victory and that of Paul Breitner in 1975, there initially seemed to be few problems. West Germany came within a penalty shootout of winning three successive major tournaments. Famously, Panenka of Czechoslovakia did for them in the Euro 76 final. Most shockingly of all, Franz Beckenbauer, the captain and leader, floated off to play for New York Cosmos. The Kaiser's last cap came in a friendly against France in February 1977. David Miller wrote that all the departures combined to reduce the champions to average proportions. Draws with Mexico and Wales and a defeat to Sweden in the year leading up to the World Cup did suggest that West Germany were vulnerable. Amongst the survivors from the 1974 final were Sepp Meyer, still rated as one of the world's best goalkeepers, Bertie Votes, the Tigers right-back who had succeeded Beckenbauer as captain, just as 13 years later he'd succeed him as manager, and Reiner Bonhoff who had set up the winning goal in the 1974 final. Of the new faces, Dieter Muller was a dangerous striker, top scorer at Euro 76 and prolific at club level for FC Köln, and that's FC Cologne by the way. 
the Bundesliga champions. Hansi Muller and Karl-Heinz Rummenigge were promising talents. Manny Kaltz, a right-back, was being used as a sweeper, but he wasn't in the Beckenbauer class, but to be fair, who was? The main problem for Schoen, as we've seen with so many defending champions, was that the surviving players were at least two years past their peak, and the new players simply weren't in the same class. Colin Malum wrote that, The conveyor belt of exceptional talent was offering mere mortals instead of gods. West Germany no longer had the players to sustain their formidable reputation for skill, power and resilience. Uli Hesse said the squad was largely a grey mass of grafters. That being said, West Germany being West Germany, they were still expected to do well. Certainly they weren't expected to have any problems negotiating what looked like a straightforward group. Poland, who had finished third in 1974, were back, having gone unbeaten through their qualifying group. They could still call on the bulk of their 1974 team, so that meant Tomaszewski, Brian Clough's favourite goalkeeper, was still around to frustrate opponents with his unorthodox style. Gorgon and Zamuda were the bedrock of the defence. In midfield, there was Dana, described by Colin Malum. As graceful and intelligent, he was pulling the strings. Up front, they could still call in Lato, the top scorer in 1974, and Sharmak. Also available was the prolific Lubanski, who had missed the 1974 World Cup after picking up a terrible knee injury against England in the qualifiers for that tournament. Lubanski had first been capped in 1963 as a 16-year-old, and he was Poland's all-time top scorer before being superseded by a certain Mr. Lewandowski. The pre-tournament previews made much of the Polish team getting old, but they did have an emerging new talent, the versatile Boniek, who had become one of the young stars of this World Cup. Mexico had qualified by winning the CONCACAF Championship on home soil, which doubled as a qualifying group. Not much was expected of Mexico. They had made a meal of getting through the initial stage of the CONCACAF Championship. Their most eye-catching player was Quelar, who was described in the official film as a midfielder whose skills were reputed to be as remarkable as his personal appearance. Quelar had a massive afro and beard. Make sure you check out the pictures of him. The goal threat was expected to come from Rangel, a 20-year-old who had scored six goals in the CONCACAF Championship. The Mexicans had an even younger goal threat than Rangel, a 19-year-old by the name of Hugo Sanchez, who of course would go on to become Mexico's greatest ever striker. This was the start of Sanchez's unusual feat, of playing in three World Cups, but alternately, 1978, 1986, 
Chinesia were debutantes. The ITV preview magazine described them as clearly the weakest team in the finals. Whilst the Glasgow Herald said, for them to win the tournament would be the same as the selling platter winning the Epsom Derby. It had been an eventful few years for the Tunisians. They had to play three two-legged ties before going into the final qualifying group. In the first of those ties, they drew 2-2 with Morocco on aggregate. Tunisia won 4-2 on penalties in what was the first shootout ever used in World Cup football. At AFCON in 1978, Tunisia walked off the pitch during the third place playoff against Nigeria in protest at the referee's decisions. This led to the Tunisians being banned from the next AFCON and to fears that they would be thrown out of the World Cup too. However, the African Federation told FIFA not to nominate another representative. Tunisia would play in the World Cup. Following the ill-fated AFCON, Tunisia had lost to fellow finalists Holland and France, but had managed to draw with Hungary. A setback for Tunisia was the absence of goalkeeper Sadok Atuga Sassi, regarded as one of Africa's best goalkeepers and a hero in his native country. Diab, the African footballer of the year, was described in the official film as the driving force in midfield. The Glasgow Herald didn't expect much of him. It said, he is rated highly in Africa, but should be out of his depth here. Group 3 had Brazil, Spain, Sweden, Austria. Brazil were going through one of their periodic identity crises. They were managed by Claudio Coutinho, who had been the physical trainer in 1970, but lacked real managerial experience. Coutinho was an army captain, and this was seen as a jobs for the boys appointment, as Admiral Nunes, a senior military man, was the head of Brazilian sport. This was a period when Brazil's military dictatorship was determined to exploit the national team. The perception of Coutinho as the dictatorship's placeman undermined what little authority he did have. Coutinho wanted to find some way of combining Brazilian individual skills with European tactical organisation. But as we'd see, it was usually always the latter 
that won out at the expense of the former. He saw Holland's total football as the model and he wanted, in the words of Stuart Horsfield, to develop a sophisticated South American hybrid version. However, as the World Cup drew closer, Brian Glanville wrote that the emphasis was on fitness and European hardness. Coutinho viewed fitness, organisation and physicality as the best way to get results against European sides. The Brazilian public was unimpressed and Coutinho was heavily criticised by the media. He also had arguments with his players. Brazil embarked on a European tour in the spring of 1978. Shahan Petrosian, the host of Soccer Nostalgia Talk podcast, wrote a great article for Football Masters, the ultimate digital retro football magazine, issue 6, about the tour. Brazil's robustness was shown most notoriously in a friendly against England at Wembley. Shahan wrote that the match is remembered for Brazil's cynical and rough play throughout. They collected a string of bookings in a 1-1 draw. As for the squad, defensively they were solid enough, although there was no room for Mourinho, the stylish left-back, or Pereira, the man-mountain centre-back who played for Atletico Madrid. Rivellino in midfield was the last link to 1970 but he'd argued with Coutinho about his role in the new system. Batista had emerged with credit from the European tour. Sarazo was a skillful young midfielder, but Falcao, a technically gifted playmaker, didn't make the squad, and neither did Paulo Cesar, a talented if erratic winger, which added fuel to the criticism that Coutinho was taking flair out of the Brazil squad. They'd also struggled to find quality wingers. Much was expected of Seco, who had emerged as one of the best talents in recent years, but there was a mixed bag of strikers and a lack of true international quality. Despite the griping about selection and tactics, Brazil were regarded by most tournament previews as probably the favourites for the World Cup. But by this stage, Brazil were living off their reputation. Spain had come through a tough group, finishing ahead of Romania and Yugoslavia. The decisive match against Yugoslavia in Belgrade was a brutal encounter. Juanito, the Spanish winger, was hit with a bottle as he was leaving the field. This was Spain's first World Cup since 1966. They still had Perry, a veteran of that campaign, who was the sweeper. Their main goal threat was Ruben Cano, an Argentinian-born striker who had actually been in Argentina's provisional squad in 1974. Spain's manager was Ladislao Kubala, and he was a very interesting character. He was a legendary Barcelona striker in the 50s and early 60s, spearheading the team to three domestic doubles. He had the unusual distinction of having played international football for three teams, Hungary, the country of his birth, Czechoslovakia and Spain. 
Sweden qualified for the third World Cup in a row. They had come through a relatively easy qualifying group against Norway and Switzerland. The Swedes could still call on Ronnie Hellström, who had been their goalkeeper in 1970 and 1974. Bjorn Nordqvist, the veteran captain, who had also played in the previous two World Cups, he was still there, heading towards eclipsing Bobby Moore's 108 international caps. Austria were back for the first time since 1958. Hans Krankel was their main man up front, a prolific goalscorer for Rapid Vienna and for the Austrian national team. The Austrians had a reputation for being a durable side, hard to beat. Bruno Petzi, the sweeper, was a highly rated player, a key man in the defence, and other key players included Schaschner and Prohaska. Group 4 had Holland, Scotland, Peru, Iran. The Dutch were going through their usual psychodrama. They had started the qualifying campaign under the managership of Jan Svartkruis. During the campaign, however, Svartkruis was demoted to a coaching role within the Dutch setup, and he was replaced by the Austrian Ernst Happel, who Colin Malin described as a prickly character with a lugubrious face, evoking memories of comedian Tony Hancock. Happel was still managing Bruges, who he took to a league title and the European Cup final so he couldn't take full control until shortly before the World Cup. Happel's gruff authoritarianism didn't go darn well with the players. Unlike Renus Meikles with the Ajax contingent in 1974, Happel didn't have a core of players to call on who he'd worked with before. Gary Thacker wrote about palpable discord in the camp, par for the course where the Dutch are concerned. Holland brought most of their team that had played in the 1974 final. Ari Han, Rude Kroll, Johnny Rep, Johan Neskins and so on. There was one major exception, Johan Cruyff. The reason for Cruyff's absence remained a mystery for years until the man himself revealed it. His family had been the victim of a kidnapping attempt in September 1977 in Barcelona. Fearing for his safety and his family's safety, Cruyff decided not to travel to Argentina. 
The police advised him not to publicise what had happened, which led to numerous theories as to why he wasn't at the World Cup, a protest against the Argentinian junta, a fallout with the Dutch FA, a row over money, etc. The Dutch media and fans begged Cruyff to reconsider, but he wasn't for turning. Cruyff's absence opened the way for Rob Renzenbrink, who had often been in the great man's shadow, and now Renzenbrink could assert himself in the Dutch front line. When Happel told the team that they would have to learn to play without Cruyff, Zwart Kreis interpreted that as a dig at his own closeness to the great man. There would be tension between Happel and Zwart Kreis during the World Cup. Gary Thacker wrote that arguably the squad was more functional than flair driven. With Cruyff and Van Hannigan absent, the Dutch were unlikely to hit the stylish heights of 1974, but they were still rated as strong contenders. got ourselves a right doozy here with the Scots. Scotland in 1978 is a podcast episode of its own, but it's kind of been done to death, so I'll try and do it all within the parameters of this retrospective. Oh, and before anyone asks, God Save the Queen was the anthem used by Scotland up to and including this World Cup. Willie Ormond, who had been the manager in 1974, left the job in May 1977, preferring club management with hearts. Wise man. The obvious choice to take over was Jock Steen, but the Scottish FA couldn't get Big Jock out of Celtic, so they turned to the Aberdeen manager, Alistair MacLeod. In the excellent book, 78 Scotland, How a Nation Lost the World Cup, Graham McCall said that Appointing McLeod was like dropping an effervescent tablet into a glass of still water. The new boss announced, My name is Ali McLeod and I'm a winner. By the time the Scots drew with Iran, Scotland fans probably had another word beginning with W to describe Ali McLeod. The decisive qualifier was against Wales in October 1977. The Welsh, who were forbidden to play at Cardiff Ninian Park because of crowd trouble in a previous game, overlooked Wrexham and chose Anfield as an alternative stadium, hoping to cash in on the increased revenue. This backfired on the Welsh FA because, as David Miller wrote, the rabid Scots fans just about acquired the leasehold of Anfield by every ruse imaginable. Busloads of Scots travelled to North Wales to apply for tickets. They used accommodation addresses and succeeded in soaking up much of the Welsh allocation. The Scots were helped on their way by a controversial incident. John was up there.
time for you to come in, Bob Wilson. Well, there was a hand up there, Edwell. I don't know why, but there was a hand up. There it goes, isn't it? There it is. Bob Wilson, one could almost say that was a Scottish hand. I don't think so, Edwell. I think it was from behind. If well, we have a look again, we have a look again. But I could say I saw Jordan's hand. Well, certainly Jordan's hand went up as well. Let's have a look. Well, it's a penalty for Scotland. And Di Davis to save the day for Wales against Don Masson. No trouble. Don Masson for Scotland. A very good penalty. And that's the scoreline. Wales nil, Scotland won. In the Welsh box, Joe Jordan went up for the ball with David Jones. Joe Jordan stuck up a hand, but bizarrely, the referee gave a penalty to Scotland, even though you could clearly see Jordan's long dark sleeve going up and touching the ball. Don Masson tucked away the penalty, and a header from Kenny Dalglish sealed a 2-0 win and Scotland's passes to Argentina. What followed was what Graham McCall described as a six-month festival of Scottish kitsch. Andy Cameron played the role of court jester. Andy Cameron was the Scottish comedian who did the famous song Ali's Tartan Army. We're on the march with Ali's army, we're going to the Argentine, etc. The song contained such classic lines as We had to get a man who could make all Scotland proud. He's our Muhammad Ali. He's Alistair MacLeod. And we're representing Britain and we've got to do or die. For England, can I do it? Because they didn't qualify. The official song was Ole Ola, recorded by Rod Stewart and the Scottish team, but Ali's Tartan Army is the song everyone remembers. Years later, Andy Cameron went on to play Chick Cherry in Take the High Road, or High Road as it was rebranded by then, so at least Mr Cameron's career didn't suffer long term from the Argentina disaster. You're getting it all today. South American politics, military dictatorships, World Cup football, Scottish soap operas. Scottish managers had traditionally been dour, solid figures, but not our alley. In the build-up, he went around gleefully sloshing petrol on the flames of Scottish optimism and talked about winning a medal. Some of the quotes attributed to him may have been apocryphal, however. A week before the tournament started, Hugh McIlvenny wrote in The Observer, If, as every Englishman suspects, the Scots ingest a weakness for hyperbole with their mother's milk, Ali MacLeod would seem to have been breastfed until he was 15. During the past six months, MacLeod's pronouncements have shown all the objective restraint of the Highland Light Infantry going over the top. The event that seemed to encapsulate the madness was the glorious send-off that the Scots were given at Hampden Park, which included the players being introduced individually, by Andy Cameron of course, and an open-top bus on a lap of honour. To be fair to MacLeod, it was actually the Scottish FA's idea. MacLeod and his players had been uncomfortable with it. The Scottish FA and the police had been worried that thousands of Scottish fans would descend on the airport, so the send-off was for the benefit of the fans, 
but to outsiders, it seemed to demonstrate that the Scots were getting carried away before a single ball had been kicked. Where it is a World Cup campaign, there's money to be made. There were commercial opportunities with Chrysler, Umbro and Heineken. The players have since testified that they didn't make much money from the promos, but the perception of the players being on the make would be very damaging once things started to unravel in Argentina. There was also a row over bonuses, with McLeod apparently having not clarified with the players how much they stood to earn, and this was complicated by the tax issue, with Britain's sky-high tax rate in those benighted pre-revolutionary days. This row would rumble right through the World Cup. McLeod's hubris notwithstanding, there were reasons for Scotland to feel that they had a good chance at this World Cup. This was an era when Scottish players were highly rated at the sharp end of the English league. Graham McCall wrote that No self-respecting English team could go about its business without several Scots to add flair and inventiveness to English craftsmanship. McLeod called up Souness and Daglish, who had just won the European Cup with Liverpool. Burns, Robertson and Gemmell, who had just won the First Division Championship with Nottingham Forest. There was also a Manchester United contingent, Buchan, McQueen, Jordan and McCarry, as well as the Derby County duo, Rioch and Masson. Impressive, on paper at least. And Brian Glanville wrote that they had more outstanding players, certainly than any of the other British teams, an abundance of fine midfield players when most other countries looked for them desperately. You get odds from Ladbrokes of 8-1 on Scotland winning the World Cup, putting them behind only Brazil, Argentina and West Germany. There was controversy when Andy Gray, the prolific young Aston Villa striker, didn't make the provisional squad of 40, let alone the final 22. McLeod chose Joe Harper, the Aberdeen striker, instead and faced accusations that he was favouring Harper because of their time together at Aberdeen. McLeod attributed Gray's omission to the player's injury history, but Hugh McLevenny said that choosing Harper over Gray marks the point at which the manager's admirable independence of mind spills over into self-destructive stubbornness. Gray would have to make do with some punditry work with ITV, the start of a famous media career, which would eventually lead to him forming a double act with Richard Keyes. Well, somebody better get down there and explain offside to her. Yeah, I know. Can leave I can guarantee you there'll be a big one today. Can you go poppy? This is not the first time, is it? Didn't we have one before? Yeah. Wendy Toms. Wendy Toms or something like that. Oh, the game's gone mad. See the charming Karen Brady this morning complaining about sexism. Yeah, do me a favour, love. Sorry, I couldn't resist.
Peru arrived as the reigning Copa America champions. The manager, Marcus Calderon, had been selected by the clubs at the behest of the Peruvian FA, as Peru didn't have a World Cup committee. The Peruvian FA was financially stricken, and FIFA gave them a helping hand to pay for their World Cup trip. Much was made of the Peru team supposedly getting on in years. The ITV preview magazine said age and stamina could go against them. Colin Malham wrote that the Peruvians were dismissed as a fragile bunch of ageing ball players. The reason for this is that they were still using several of their players from 1970, most notably the wonderful Kubias, who was pulling the strings in midfield, but was perceived to be injury prone and past his best. And there was also the outstanding Chimpitas, one of the best defenders in the world, but who was 34 going into this World Cup. There was also a division in the camp between the Sporting Cristal players and the Alianza Lima players. However, Peru had only lost once in qualifying to Brazil. They were the Copa America champions and they had gone into a training camp from the start of 1978, as well as playing a lot of pre-tournament friendlies. They also had two fast wingers, Mignante and Oblitas, who were capable of causing trouble for opposition defences. Iran were World Cup debutants. They had won the last three Asian Cups and benefited from the large sums of money that had been poured into the national setup by the government, and from the excellent work done by Frank O'Farrell, the ex-Manchester United manager, who had been in charge of the Iranian national team between 1974 and 1976. O'Farrell's deputy, Heshmat Mohajarani, had taken over from O'Farrell and steered the team to the World Cup. The backdrop to Iran's campaign was the rapidly deteriorating political situation. The Shah's rule was under threat as protests turned into riots and the government used repressive measures in response. Revolution was in the air. This put the Iran team in a difficult position. The state funding that they had received meant that they were almost viewed as the Shah's team and the players were spooked by alleged threats against them and their families from religious radicals. The players would become worried during the tournament that Savak, the Shah's secret police, had planted agents in the camp to spy on them. Parviz Glishkani, Iran's outstanding player, described by David Miller as being to Iranian soccer what Pele was to Brazil, he was known as an opponent of the Shah's regime and was absent from the World Cup squad. Majid Panahi wrote that there was simply no one in his skill, experience level and class in the team. The Iranians were further diminished when Adil Kani and Mazlumi dropped out through injury. Roshan did make the squad despite being only half fit. 
the absences left Iran without its first choice forward line and they were being lined up as the whipping boys of Group 4, easy meat for Scotland, allegedly. Make sure you listen to episode 85 of the Soccer Nostalgia Talk podcast for a detailed look at Iran's 1978 World Cup. Those were the 16 finalists. Just a couple of things to note. Eight of the teams at this World Cup hadn't qualified in 1974. An unusual period of churn in the international game, or a reflection of the cutthroat nature of qualification, with over 100 nations scrambling for just 16 places. A little from column A, a little from column B. From our modern perspective, The idea of just 16 teams at the World Cup seems ludicrous, even more so when you consider how the world has expanded since then, with the dissolution of Yugoslavia and the collapse of the Soviet Union. The argument for expansion almost makes itself, but we also know where it leads to. The other thing about 1978, if you read some of the commentary, was that it was difficult to find an obvious favourite. Most of the leading contenders had their problems, whether it was Brazil's lack of a settled side and Coutinho arguing with Rivellino about where the 1970 legend should play, Holland's lack of Cruyff, West Germany's loss of quality players and Argentina's difficult group and so on. Frank McGee of the Daily Mirror wrote that it could be won by any of half a dozen teams. The decline of many of the great sides of the 1970s and the question marks over others perhaps explains why Scotland were rated so highly. During the tournament, World Soccer's Eric Batty wrote, As I expected, the World Cup has not produced a great side. Well, that's hopefully most of the table setting done for the 1978 World Cup. I felt the military dictatorship needed to be looked at in some detail before I can turn my eye to the football. Obviously, there will be references to the dictatorship when it comes to discussing some of the Argentina matches, and one in particular. Next month, I'll move on and talk about the first group stage. Definitely one for you to listen to if you're a Scotland fan, or maybe not. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, at Matthew Ocott, and also follow at World Cup Ramble. Rate, review, Leave me some Twitter correspondence and make sure to subscribe to World Cup Rambling on your podcast platform.